Hi there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode 6. Leaf by Niggle. Not by Gene Wolfe, but by J.R.R. Tolkien. Written in 1938 and 39, and originally published in the Dublin Review in 1945. I'm very confused, Amanda. I thought this was a Gene Wolfe podcast. Well, sometimes we go off the rails. So, Leaf by Niggle is a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it has three distinct sections in it that I can pick out. It's about an artist who is painting a tree, and he has a journey that he needs to go on, but instead of preparing for his journey, he continues to expand his painting and making it larger and focusing more and more on leaves and the background, and eventually it consumes his life to the point where he's taking his other paintings and incorporating them into this painting of a tree. So his neighbor's wife comes down with a cold, and his neighbor, Parrish, comes over and asks him to go get the doctor, and also, oh yes, in the storm that happened, the shingles came off the roof, so he needs him to go to the builder so they can get the roof repaired. Niggle is irritated because he's the one with the bicycle. It's an interruption. It's also cold. And he goes out, goes and finds the doctor, but the doctor's not there, can't find the builder. So he leaves notes for him, comes back home, and he gets sick. And then he <clears throat> ends up being called for his journey. And so he gets on a coach and winds up in a hospital or a psych ward. It's a little unclear. And there's doctors there. They're taking care of him. And then because he didn't prepare for his journey, he shows up with essentially no possessions. So he's in the pauper's wing where he has to work for his time there. And there's an evaluation. They say that he can be released. So he goes out and there's a train outside the hospital. And it takes him to a house and his bike is there. And as he's riding his bike across the plain, he sees his tree that he had imagined his whole life. And it's, it's there, but it's, uh, it's better. It's the way he imagined. It's not the way he painted it. And he explores the area and there's a forest. He can see mountains in the distance. Then uh, Parrish shows up. He's apparently also had to go on his journey after Niggle did, and then he was released because Niggle realizes that he needs Parrish's help to fix up the area around the tree. So they build a garden, they build a house, and then as they're finished with their work, Parrish realizes that he now wants to go to the mountains. Uh, Niggle. Excuse me, Niggle. Yes, Niggle realizes he wants to go to the mountains, and he... Uh, goes with a, a shepherd, and Parrish stays back at the house waiting for Parrish's wife to show up. And then we cut to like a little coda on the end where the people back at the town, they find Niggle's original painting. It has uh, been torn apart because it was used to repair Parrish's house. And in the storms, it knocked off a small square and it has a tiny little leaf on it and one of the town townspeople takes it and frames it and put it puts it into the town museum and it has a label leaf by niggle do you want to add anything to my summary there no i think that's that's pretty good um any other details i think will come out in the discussion there is a second coda where there's some talk back around the the real tree and the house and garden that Parrish and Niggle build together, but I think it'd be better to talk about that as we discuss the, the themes and ideas in the story. So, so that's pretty much the whole thing. Okay. So I, I'm excited to talk about this story because it's a favorite for me. I didn't 
uh, first read it until probably about seven or eight years ago, although I'd read a lot of Tolkien's work before that. Uh, Leaf by Niggle was new to me. And uh, the first time I read it, it struck me as a, it was just a very moving and emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt a strong sense of identification with some of the characters and the moods and themes that Tolkien was communicating just very much spoke to me in the midst of, you know, everyday life and, and the things that I was dealing with. So it it means a lot to me. So I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> well, my experience was actually the opposite because when I first read this was in college. Okay. And I had just finished reading Lord of the Rings. And for some reason, I'm not sure why looking back on it now, but for some reason, I just assumed that the rest of the material in the Tolkien body of works was about Middle Earth. And so I started reading mm -hmm. Leaf by Niggle and I kept trying to fit it into Middle Earth instead of accepting the work for what it was. Okay, so you resisted it because it wasn't in the the Middle Earth mythology. Yeah, and so actually it was um, after you had read it. And enthused about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, I was like, oh yeah, I need to go back to that. So I went back to it after your encouragement and you were talking about it. And now I was you know, willing to meet the work where it, actually is instead of, you know, my ridiculous hopes and dreams that had no basis in reality. <laughs> right. That it would be another little side story about hobbits or something. Yeah. <laughs> Can we start just talking about the theme of, of creation, of making? It's the biggest theme in the story. It's the, uh -huh. the central theme, I think. Um, and as, as far as I know, it was a lot of Tolkien's motivation for writing the story. It was his struggle with creativity. Yeah. So the the story opens with uh, the description of Niggle, and he's called a little man. <laughs> and um, I've taught this story a few times, and I've rarely encountered a student who knew what the word Niggle means. Oh, really? Yeah, which surprised me because it seems from... I know what the word niggle means, and so I assume other people do too. I don't have a special dictionary I carry around to look things up in, but it seems a pretty obvious meaning... It's like a, a trifling thing, right? Yeah, to worry over small things. Yeah. And my students, not knowing the meaning of the name, struggled a bit more than I would have expected with interpreting his character. But there once was a little man called Niggle, the opening phrase, tells you almost everything you need to know about Niggle as a character. The, his littleness, he's not important, he's not significant. It doesn't seem to be a physical descriptor, but a, a, a metaphysical descriptor. Yeah. And if his name is Niggle, then he is fussy and <laughs> um, uh, careful about small things and possibly careless about large things. Yeah. Um, and then the second paragraph begins, Niggle was a painter, not a very successful one. <laughs> And then the description of him as it's, you know, it's woven through the narrative, he clearly cares about his painting more than more than anything else. He's passionate about it. And so that focus for his character that this is the one thing he really wants to do. This is the one thing he cares about, the one thing he worries about, and mm -hmm. everything else that exists in his life is either the necessity of taking care of himself or the demands that other people or uh, the laws of his country, which <laughs> yeah. were rather strict, place on him. And so creativity is is central to his life. The uh, One of the things that stands out to me is how he tries to capture that. Like when he's out, when he's out walking, he, he sees different leaves and then he tries to paint them on the tree, capturing all the different like little parts of their beauty. And he, he's trying to create a whole tree that all has the same type of leaves. Yes. But each one of them is an individual leaf. So even though they're the same type, each one has its own individuality. And he's trying to capture that instead of just kind of giving impressions of a leaf there. He's very detailed focused in it. So. And later in the story, he's described as having cared about leaves for their own sake, which is a wonderful description of the, the creative impulse that the thing that is being made is cared about for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I also really like the line when he's riding his bike to go find the builder and the doctor. 
he's thinking about the leaves and realizing just the right thing to do. And his fingers twitched on the handlebars. <laughs> so they're, they're wanting to paint even when he's physically far away from his painting. Yeah. There's another, <clears throat> I guess, component of Niggle's character here that in some ways I, I feel like I kind of identified with where it talks about how he's kind hearted, but largely in the way where it's like he notices other people's problems, but... But he's still grumpy about having yes. to help them. <laughs> uh-huh. So, and he gets irritated because uh, Parrish has a limp and it's made clear in the story that it, it's an actual limp and it causes him problems and it hurts his back. And so he's not able to do all the work that uh, hurts him to go upstairs. It hurts him to to walk around. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's an imposition on Niggle when anytime Parrish comes over and asks for something. And he uh, his line here is, I wish I was more strong-minded. He sometimes said to himself, meaning that he wished that other people's troubles did not make him feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. And I do like that description of his kind-heartedness because there is a genuine kind-heartedness in there, but mixed up with all of the limitation and complexity of a human soul, mm-hmm. where he does, perhaps against his will, empathize with other people's problems and therefore engage with them. He just doesn't have a good attitude about it. Yeah. It seems a very realistic kind of thing. It does. So he's working on the on the painting, and when Parrish comes over and needs help, Parrish doesn't pay any attention to it. And that is one of the things that's particularly difficult for Niggle to deal with. He wants Parrish to notice it. Yes. But he doesn't want to say anything about it, and he doesn't think that it's his place to say anything about it. When uh, when Parrish asks Niggle for help, Niggle recognizes, right, the genuine lame leg, which gave him a good deal of pain. And then on the contrary side, of course, Niggle had a picture and barely time to finish it. But it seemed that this was a thing that Parrish had to reckon with and not Niggle. And so <laughs> in this telling, I, Niggle comes across as, I think we would identify him as a good-hearted person if we met someone who despite being overwhelmed and distracted by his own concerns, didn't put them forward for someone else to, didn't put them out like, no, you have to worry about my worries. Mm-hmm. He'll engage with someone else's problems. But if Parrish is going to engage with Niggle's problems, that's up to Parrish and Niggle's not going to try to force it. Yeah. Well, and along the lines there where you're talking about how Parrish won't even look at the painting, Another aspect of Niggle's personality is that he sometimes daydreams about how somebody would show up and they'd be like, yes, this is amazing. I see what you're trying to do. You know what? Let's get you on a public pension so you, you know, you'll, so you have patronage and you don't have to worry about all the other day-to-day things of life and you can just get things done. Yeah, he's longing for that artist's I don't know, nirvana, which is (laughs) to have everything paid for so you don't have to try and supply your basic needs, but just focus on your art. Yeah. And there's an aspect to it where um, Tolkien and their other literary figures of that time period, I'm thinking of Lewis too, where they wrote many letters to people that they responded to people that reached out to them. They they also uh, had many callers in in real life, like they would come and interrupt them. And just from my perspective, like after they're dead and gone, like sometimes I go back and I read the letters that have been collected and it's like, eh, this this isn't very good. Right. Um, I'm thinking particularly of C.S. Lewis's uh, letters to an American lady. It's it feels like it's a cash grab collection. Like as a, as a publication. Yes. Oh, yeah. For sure. And so I can't help but read it and get frustrated where it's like, okay, well, I wish that Tolkien and Lewis and some of these other writers would have spent more time writing. <laughs> and not writing these letters. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's like if there weren't those interruptions there, like I, I look at this and it's like, oh, I identify with Niggle. And one, I, one reason, like I'm inserting myself in the story, but then I'm also imagining Niggle as Tolkien. Yes. And part of me is like, yeah, perish. Leave him leave him alone. He's got important things to write. Far more important than anything else that we could ever talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of letters, I went through uh 
Tolkien's collected letters. Oh, okay. In order to see if there were any references to Leaf by Niggle, just curious about what he might have written about it. Yeah. And it doesn't come up very much in the letters, but in one letter that's close to another letter that mentions Leaf by Niggle, just a letter to his publisher. He also wrote a letter to his son in which he describes a day in which he had someone call on him Mm -hmm. who was a deaf old lady. And (laughs) he describes her as wonderfully learned and a very good person, but impossible to talk to. So they had to carry on a conversation via a notepad. Oh, wow. Because she was so deaf. Yeah. Then the same day, while dining out, another woman at the restaurant choked on a bone. Oh. And he had to rescue her. (laughs) And he doesn't provide a description, but he says he did take her to the doctor. Oh. And then at the end of the letter, there was a third deaf woman, and I can't remember exactly (laughs) what it was she was doing, but he had three deaf old ladies to deal with in one day. And so Parrish's interruptions feel more than a little biographical. Yeah. Of course, this this letter was written well after Leaf by Niggle. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so creativity. He's working on the painting after sort of recovering from the illness that he contracts while trying to help Parrish and his wife. Yeah. He he has, it seems, about a week where he's sick and then a day where he tries to paint but can't because he's too lightheaded. And then he finally is able to get up there and use the brush again. And while he's up there, his driver shows up and tells him it's time to go on his journey. And then we have the long middle section or, or significant part of the middle section where he's not doing anything creative at all. He's stuck in this hospital slash poorhouse Mm-hmm. And they have him taking medicine, but also painting boards and mending things and doing repairs and in, in digging one, trenches. And yeah, and then he <laughs> ends by digging, yeah, digging ditches, digging trenches, mm-hmm. and until his hands are entirely blistered. Yeah, and then finally he's put to bed and and told to lie there. Yep, in the dark. Yes. And the amount of time that this takes is enormous. It, in one phrase, the first century or so is is used. And parenthetically, uh, it says, I'm just giving his impressions. Uh-huh. So there's no specific claims being made about time. But it <laughs> seems like this takes a long time. And then before he's before he's released, and then we get back to creativity. But can we talk about the release first? Sorry, I'm not trying to hurry on. But yeah. There's a board of inquiry or a, a commission that has to decide whether he needs to stay at the at the workhouse longer or not. Yes. And we hear two voices, the first voice and the second voice. And the first voice is very critical of Niggle. And it doesn't seem to be inaccurate. He's, you know, he is, his heart doesn't function properly. <laughs> he wasted time. Yeah. Not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He's a bad case. And then the second voice argues, well, he was only ever supposed to be a small kind of person, a little man in the first place. And Mm -hmm. so we never expected him to amount to much. (laughs) But there are some favorable points. And just the fact that he was a painter is the first favorable point that's mentioned for him. So it seems that at least in the universe of the story that creativity is considered an inherently good thing, however well or poorly Niggle is doing it. Yeah. It's interesting because we repeatedly hear he's a small man, not meant to do much, mm-hmm. which I think it, in some ways is at odds with the third act. It's Let me rephrase that. It's at odds with our expectations going into the third act. Right. And just him being a small man, but pouring as much of his energy, even though he is a time waster, pouring as much of his energy into the creative act as he can, it kind of are expectations are kind of flipped going in there. But one of the things that I found interesting there were he's doing the work, um, the poppers work, because he has has nothing. It's like he didn't prepare. Um, He lost his painting supplies on the train. Yes. (laughs) So what he frantically packed, he ended up losing anyway. So he comes completely destitute to the hospital. But the actions he's doing, it's very much, okay, you, you must paint this board now. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it, and it almost sounds dystopian. Right. Highly regulated. Yeah. The bell rings and you pick up and put down tasks according to the bells. Yeah. And you're not allowed any discretion for mm-hmm. what you are doing during your allotted time. And it talks about how at night when he's, or well, when he's in his bedroom in the dark, 
and resting, he thinks about how he can properly order like, oh, I can paint this board better or I can. Right. He, he's thinking about how he can better focus his attention on the tasks that he's being asked to do. And he does discipline himself into being good at these things, being able to pick things up and put them down neatly and in order so that they're ready for mm. the next time. And then his his emotions are described as he, he has a sense of satisfaction, bread rather than jam. Yes. Uh, which I, I love. And that is a great description. Yeah. And he had no time of his own, and yet he was becoming master of his time. He began to know just what he could do with it. And so he has this growing self-awareness along with his growing self-discipline. Yeah. And so there's almost a sense in there that the creative aspect of humanity, even though we, we all have it, like it's a, well, I would argue we all have it. It's <laughs> whether we all use it or yeah, not. <laughs> whether we all use it. But there, there's a sense that it, it's almost kind of disruptive to discipline because we don't know how to utilize it or manage it without it like overcoming us. And right. so, so there's like a restriction of what you're allowed to do with that creativity to the point that I'm pretty sure that if we were to be able to ask Niggle, he would say that he's not exercising any creativity. Right. And so it's, it's like that it's almost you need that narrowing of the options available for you to be able to master yourself in some way, especially if you you feel that creative pull. Right. And if it's given free reign and in boundless time and boundless space, it tends to be energy that dissipates rather than focuses or, or is productive. Yeah. And that was one of his main issues because he kept expanding the canvas. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well... I'm going to paint something over here. And right. and yet he's like, well, I'm not even sure if I can finish what I have outlined now. But right. the draw to do that was a serious draw. Yeah. To to just keep adding on and, and taking other pictures and tacking them on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So then he comes before the council, kind of. He's still in bed, but the, the council is discussing him. The second voice has the responsibility of putting the best interpretation on the facts. And the second voice is given the last word, which pronounces that it's time for Niggle to have a little gentle treatment now, mm. uh, which Niggle hears and says, it made gentle treatment sound like a load of rich gifts and the summons to a king's feast. And so they come in and take him out of his room, give him new clothes and send him on another train ride. Yeah. And this one is where he gets gets off the train. His bicycle is there, the same bicycle, apparently, from the wet bicycle ride. Yeah. Um, mystically or mythically transported. And then he finds that he's there in his picture, but it's alive. Yeah. It, it's not a turn I had originally been expecting when I first read the story. Right. And I, I don't know how you just, there's a fantastical or a magical realism element that I would just call it mythical, but yeah, mythical. I well, I was I was trying to think back when I had first read right. this, and the, like this part here was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> okay, so twenty something, you yeah was was not ready to hear this, and this seems to be a claim that the work that he'd begun before his journey, which we keep using the terms of the story. I think I'm just going to go ahead and leap into the allegorical dimension of the interpretation. What? And say the painting he was working on during his lifetime yeah. has come alive somehow in an afterlife. The journey is death, you guys. Um, what? I don't know if you picked <laughs> up on that already. And it's transformed or it already existed and he had glimpses of it somehow through the veil or the fact that he made it caused it to exist somehow. The fact that he painted it caused it also to exist somehow in this realm. Mm -hmm. His exclamation, and I'm, this actually makes me cry every time I read it, mostly because of who I am as a person, but partly because of the power <laughs> of Tolkien's prose. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say of that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. 
He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. Ah, I just love that. Yeah. Some of the uh, funny parts here, or at least what struck me as funny, is all the birds in the tree, and they're singing and mating and hatching and growing wings and flying away. So it's like they're, they've just taken up residency here. Right. And I don't think that we're given an indication when he's painting the tree that the birds are there. There's, a, there's no mention of them that I remember. Yeah. So that's a interesting development. Yeah, that there's some dimension of it that he didn't paint, but still is naturally a part of it. Yeah. And I don't, this feels like I'm meandering into talking about themes, but that's okay. <laughs> the, this part here certainly calls to mind the parable of the mustard seed, where Christ says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but then when it is fully grown, it's, it's a large tree and then the birds come and they build their nests in it and right. everything. So. It's interesting to me because the birds weren't mentioned, but then his seed, if you will, of a painting of a tree became the tree and the landscape around there. It became real. And the natural home then for the birds. Yeah. Yeah. And that also speaks to an aspect that he does describe, which is that the tree is finished, but not finished with. That there's some sense that although everything here is in some sense complete, it's not fulfilled. And so he still has a part to play in the development of the landscape. Yeah. And there's a section in there where it speaks of him going out into the landscape. Yes. And I, I love that part because it talks about he could never go out into the distance without it just becoming mere surroundings. Yes. But now he's he's aware of all the all the trees and the flowers and the blades of grass. He's aware of everything as a individual component of creation and that to me was it it's, it just feels important to me because I I don't know about you, but I feel a lot of time that I live a distracted life. Everything's vying for my attention and, you know, looking at each blade of grass and recognizing it as a, as an individual aspect of creation is, I would like to do that. However, it's hard (laughs) when it's, you know, it's like advertisements and all this. And it's like just coming to each aspect of creation and appreciating it for what it is instead of it just, you know, fading into. Yeah, it just being some kind of scene setting or, or backdrop to whatever else is going on. Yeah, that's uh, so that that part there speaks to me. I really liked that aspect of it and the way that he describes being able to see a place and perceive it, walk to it and still retain that perception while then being able to see other distances and perceiving them so that this sense of complexity and realness is is multiplied many times over. Yeah. That sense of awareness of multiple realities at the same time or multiple dimensions of experience. It made me think about well, walking in the forest, which is, I don't, can I say that's a hobby? That doesn't seem like a <laughs> hobby. I have a taste for such things. I, I believe it's a hobby. Okay. Um, walking in the forest is a hobby (laughs) that I very much have a taste for. And there are different kinds of landscapes that are pleasurable in different ways. Mm -hmm. Steep hillsides are, are very different from rolling hills. Very large, tall trees are very different from, you know, thick undergrowth. Yeah. A meadow is entirely different from, uh, you know, a mountain stream with ferns beside it. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about those those things and his description put me in mind of the ability to perceive and enjoy multiple types of landscapes at the same time. Yeah. So I, I love that description. But Parrish is joining us. Yeah. And Niggle under the tree and looking around and they're working together now on completing, improving fulfilling the the purpose of the space? Yeah, because Niggle looks around and so the tree is 
is good. Yes. However, he's noticing that he may have been a little neglectful of other aspects of the landscape. If only that had been foreshadowed early in the story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the house and garden also need to be cared for. Yeah. Well, they actually need to be built in this case. Yeah, built. But he he realizes, he's like, oh, the person that knows about different plants and how you would structure a garden and how you would structure a landscape. He's like, oh, that's, that's Parrish. Yeah, it's always good to have a friend that knows a thing or two about where to put the plants. <laughs> yep. Well, he looks down the hill and... There's Parrish with his shovel. Yeah, ready to start work with him. And I, my favorite part of the Niggle-Parrish relationship, I mean, they get along now where they were at odds before. Mm -hmm. That seemed kind of a given to me after their residency, their respective residencies in the hospital slash workhouse. Yeah. But Parrish is now the one who is gazing around astonished by the beauty of the tree and attending to the details. Yeah, that is an encouraging aspect of just thinking about the ways that there are things that we don't see and don't appreciate. And there's a note of hopefulness that even if you're overly concerned about one aspect of life, as a human being, you have the potential to broaden your awareness and become attuned to more than one thing. Yes. One thing, I since you already pointed out that the journey is death. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> So Parrish is here. Yeah. And this goes back to when Parrish comes over to Niggle and he's, oh, my, my wife has a fever. And Niggle's like, are you sure it's not just a cold? And he's like, I wouldn't have interrupted you if it, like I thought it was something as small as a cold. So Parrish's wife isn't here. No, and it was just a cold. And it was just a cold. And his wife is still alive. Yet Parrish and Niggle are now dead. Yes. And, and she's now, well, she's not managing without either of them to do any of the things that she wants. Yeah. So would I be meandering off into themes if I... You can meander off into themes anytime you want. Okay. Where you were talking about kind of how Niggle and Parrish changed perspectives slightly. Because yes. it, it says Niggle actually is a better master of his time now than Parrish is. And Parrish is able to pause and actually inspect details of things. One kind of aspect, it's, it's not specifically called out in the story, but I think the subtext is there, is different aspects of the creative life. Like I, I call this like creation mandate. Like different people have different aspects of it. Some people are musicians. Right. Some people write. Some people theater or, you know, making movies or that type of stuff. Right. Or building things or yeah. painting things like Niggle. Yeah. yeah. So with, with Niggle, we have painting. And with mm -hmm. Parrish, uh, we now find out that Parrish was about tending plants. And right. he was very much into gardening and he loved plants. So there, there's just that interesting... Um, because earlier on, we get comments where Parrish is criticizing Niggle's garden and the way he keeps things. But Parrish could only see Niggle through his creation mandate where it's like, oh, he's not caring for these plants. He's not keeping them in order. He's not tending and watering and whatever else. The details are a little sparse, so we're allowed to imagine. But, but Niggle can only interpret Parrish's actions through his creation mandate of wanting to paint and free up more time so he can paint and capture the beauty around him that he sees. And I think this is, uh, I don't, as somebody who does different creative outlets, like this is something that I've run into where either people want to co-op your labor and instead of allowing you to do what they, what you want, they're always like, oh, well, oh, you do this? Well, one thing I've thought about, and it's like, oh, it's like, okay, well, you do that. Don't, don't co-opt my labor. Yeah, don't take my creative abilities and try to channel them into your inspiration. Yeah. So it's not explicitly called out, but it, it, I feel it is a theme. There's threads of it throughout the story. And there is part of this that in in the tree, the real tree <laughs> space, um, uh -huh. is is redeeming that. That in their lives, Niggle and Parrish did their best in their own limited ways to fulfill their creative functions. Yeah. They failed to appreciate one another. 
but they did both work on their creative functions. And now mm -hmm. the, the gift that's been given them is both an ability to do more things. So Niggle now has the ability to attend to the garden, which he didn't seem to have in life. And, and Parrish has ability to attend to the quote unquote painting, <laughs> you know, the, the artistic attention. Yeah. But the greatest gift is that they can appreciate each other's, each of each other's gifts and, yeah. and contributions. I think the line there, it was things could have been different, but they couldn't have been any better when yes. referring to their- I have that one highlighted. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then after they have completed the house and garden, they go for a long walk and then Niggle and Parrish separate because Niggle wants to go on to the mountains. Yeah. Which ha were painted in the in the background of his painting. He sees them as soon as he arrives at the tree place and has a longing for them, even as he is fulfilling his creative function there around the tree. Mm -hmm. Parrish wants to stay behind because his wife is coming and because his wife also has something to contribute. It's a little stereotypical that she's going to make the house more homey, <laughs> but she has she has something to do to continue to improve the place. Yeah. So now we've gone from two people creating to now she's going to be involved in the mix. So then the efforts of the three of them will help. What a significant number, creatively speaking. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, Niggle goes on to the mountains with the shepherd and he's going to learn about mountains and he's going to learn perhaps about uh, sheep, I think is, is one of the yeah, things. Yeah, that's one of the things mentioned. Having cared for sheep more than once in my life, um, that's an interesting thing to do with one's time. Yep. They smell. They do. They're stupid. So stupid. Yeah. I no longer wonder why we're called sheep in the New Testament. Yeah. Yep. On the plus side, building fence for sheep, easiest thing I've ever done. Unlike uh, building fence for a thick-headed calf. Yes. They can get through anything. Sheep stay in anything. Uh-huh. Um, speaking of building fence, this is a total aside, and you can cut it out later if you want. Uh, one time I was building fence with my dad for cows. Okay. And we had gotten to the point where we had set all of the, the corner braces and set in all of the posts, but we right. hadn't strung the barbed wire. And <laughs> a, uh, a deer wandered into our pasturage and noticed the, the posts <laughs> up. Yeah. And then begin to ra run around the soon to be fenced in place. Oh. But with no barbed wire but on it. But there's no barbed <laughs> Yes. And then finally backed way up, took a running start and a high leap, clearing whatever wire would eventually be there by more <laughs> than five feet. Deer can jump very high. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then running away. And we got a good <laughs> laugh out of it. Sometimes maybe all you need to do to build a fence is just put some posts up and then the creature will assume that they're stuck inside. Yeah. No, sheep would definitely assume they're stuck inside and not try to jump over the imaginary wire. Well, that's because they're fat and carrying a lot of wool around. <laughs> all right. So enough of the, the fencing aside. Once Niggle goes on, uh, we, we cut back to the, the final codas where we have the people in the town that are critiquing Niggle and saying that he was a useless man mm -hmm. and describing how they used his beautiful painting to repair a hole in the roof. Yep. And which is tragic and frustrating and difficult, but is, I'm assuming, Tolkien's aside here on the economic purposes to which people want to turn art. Yeah. And he's pretty universally critiqued. There seems to be very much a dystopian flavor in the conversation. Oh, yeah. One character suggests that because he was so useless, he should simply be sent on the journey sooner. Yeah. And uh, into the rubbish heap. <laughs> and another character, as you described, uh, appreciated the, the fragment of the painting that survived the leaf and, and framed it and saved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the final coda, the one that you didn't summarize, is the second voice talking again from back from the council. And that voice is describing the space that, that Niggle and Parrish worked on. It's proving very useful indeed, said the second voice, as a holiday and a refreshment. It is splendid for convalescence, and not only for that. For many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I am sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back which seems a pretty significant paragraph. 
Yes, which is why I didn't want to summarize it. <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. In that section there, I guess, um, well, I have a question, but- Go for it. I guess it's a multi-part question. So the laws of the land, like wh what are these laws of the land that come up? The ones that are, that perish or that niggle isn't very good at following? Yeah. The They're not given very much description. No. But they seem to refer to human responsibility to care for one another. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So in that sense, it's either like a moral law or the natural law that- Right. Okay. That, that your responsibility is, so far as you're able, make sure that the people around you have what they need. And so the uh, the driver, I identify the driver as death. Me too. Okay. I mean, Tolkien didn't describe a scythe or anything or a hood, <laughs> but he's very tall and wears black. <laughs> yep. So then in, in the next part of, I guess, kind of the final section of my question, the first voice and the second voice who are saying they don't have to send, send people back very often, who do you interpret the first and second voice to be? Oh, boy. Um, so this one is, is one that was always contentious with my students when I taught it. Oh, was it? Because I have a very... What I think is a very straightforward interpretation, but okay. maybe it's a presumptuous in interpretation. All right. I think they're the father and the son. So I ha that's what I had assumed too. Okay. Um, so the father with the moral law. Yes. And then- The son whose responsibility it is to place the best interpretation on things. Yeah. So he's the mediator between God the mm -hmm. father and man. And when uh, Niggle and Parrish are talking about how Parrish got to come so quickly, they say they both owe everything to the second voice. He did everything. Yes. Which seems a pretty clear invocation of the incarnation and, and the salvation in, in the, the death of Christ. Okay. So I, I would say I agree with your interpretation there. So how, what was the contention in the interpretation? Students just didn't see it. And these are students I would have expected to see it. And so trying to get them to, to understand oh. the, the tension there between the, the law and grace and interpret it there, they felt that it was presumptuous to interpret them as the father. And so these are 16-year-olds, so they have limitations. Okay. And they, they felt like not every single one of their statements could be theologically defended or theologically mapped onto something from scripture. So we're talking about very Protestant type students who want everything, not just Protestant type students, you know, reformed type students who have heard probably more about the regulative principle than mystic interpretation. Okay. Hey, that makes a little more sense because I, I'm just going to, no offense to your students, but to me, this seems fairly clear that seems to be a respect in the narrative. It's the first voice and the second voice. Yes. And so I had always interpreted that as the, the father and the son. Right. Okay. No, thanks for delineating that there because <laughs> okay. I, I was a little confused. I was like, how, wait, how are they interpreting it? I, I thought the way you were going to go was that the, uh, the first voice, because he's focused on the law, I was wondering if you were going to say they were interpreting that more as like the adversary or, or Satan. Right, right. And I think that that may have come up once or twice. That wasn't a dominant interpretation, though. So I taught this, uh, I think, five different times, four or five different times with groups of, of high school juniors. Okay. And I taught it in conjunction with the Divine Comedy. Oh. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and George MacDonald's The Golden Key. Oh, wow. Okay. So we spent three months usually... Or, or two and a half months to three months on the Divine Comedy. And then I usually gave a couple of weeks to The Great Divorce, a week to Leaf by Niggle, and then a couple of days to The Golden Key. And we worked with all four texts as interpretations of the afterlife. Hmm. Must have been some very interesting discussions if they were largely reformed background. <laughs> well, I'm just the biggest hurdle we all faced is when we got to the middle section of the Divine Comedy. And just the concept of purgatory is is pretty difficult for, for evangelical Protestant and for Reformed students to, to even discuss as a possibility. Mm, okay. But once we got through that, we, we had a, 
a lot of, of good discussions. So this, of, of all the, the afterlife texts that I taught, this one is probably my personal favorite simply because it is so, well, not simply because. In a long and complicated and rambling way, I'll try to tell you why it's so great. <laughs> it's very succinct. It's very direct. Yeah. It is connected to one specific aspect of human experience. Mm -hmm. Tolkien does not attempt to encompass a huge range of human experiences or theology. He's very personal and specific. And therefore, because he is drawing that so accurately from his own experiences, there is a universality to it that is, is just moving. This is a human experience. And you don't have to have had this precise human experience for the emotion emotions it evokes to to connect strongly. So I, I just think it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And no, knowing, knowing its composition history, too, he wrote it in the midst of just struggling to work on and to develop The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. After the success of The Hobbit, his publishers wanted some, some more Hobbit stuff. <laughs> and so he starts tacking The Hobbit onto the edge of his big picture, which is what we now think of as the Silmarillion or the, the history of Middle Earth, the uh -huh. whole complex, complicated thing. And he's trying to find the creative path that'll let him make it. And it's, it's just very difficult. And he doesn't, have, he doesn't have a good path forward. And it takes him a very long time to complete them. Yeah, I, I I can't provide an exact quote right now, but I I remember reading somewhere that he had told his publisher, "Oh yeah, I expect to be done in a month," and, and that was years <laughs> yes. years yes. before he actually delivered. Yeah, and so he he describes his internal tension so well by putting it into this character, and I think it it's very good that he made Niggle a little man, a little unimportant man working on something that is the world to him, but doesn't matter to anyone else. Because as much as we're from this perspective, looking on, I'm, I don't know, I look on The Lord of the Rings as arguably, but maybe not really arguably, the greatest work of the 20th century. I, I, don't, I don't think there are a lot of contenders for that title that can even come close. Yeah. And it is the single work that is the most rewarding for me of multiple rereadings and multiple revisitings. And yeah, and, and it moves me every time. And so knowing that he struggled so much with the sense of insignificance, but just love of the thing while he worked on his mythologies, I don't know. I just find it wonderful. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with your assessment. It's and, and I think if people are looking at it honestly, it's not exactly something you'd be posting in unpopular opinions on Reddit. <laughs> right. I think even with on mainstream literature, there's a lot of authors that attribute their love of the creative process to Tolkien. Yeah. And as, as someone who writes, that, that sense that this is something that you just chip away at and you try. And, you know, I, I'm with Niggle in that I'm easily distracted and I'm frustrated by inter in interruptions. <laughs> yeah. And I want my life to be, you know, I would like a patron to appear out of the clouds and, and grant me, you know, a lifelong pension to, <laughs> you know, create. I don't uh -huh. know if, if the pressure was off, if I'd actually be creative, but yeah. But I, I want that and and I want to know that it's it actually is lovely and wonderful. I love one of the lines that Niggle uses. I'm not sure I can remember it exactly, but he, it seemed the only really beautiful picture in the world to him wholly unsatisfactory and yet very lovely. Mm -hmm. And that sort of internal tension, it's it's totally incomplete. It's all wrong. And yet I, I just love it and it's beautiful. And so something that you make of your own that you've poured everything into I, I've never met an artist or a writer who was satisfied with their work. <laughs> yeah. At least nobody who was doing anything I thought was was good and interesting. Yeah. And so that that creative tension in there. Yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling about how much I love the story. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. If, <laughs> Go read it. <laughs> if, yeah. If you haven't read it, you should read it. And I this is one reason why we wanted to cover it in the podcast, because while I think Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Cimmerillion to a lesser extent are probably fairly well known, like this is not a work of Tolkien's that comes up a whole lot. It doesn't. I, I don't hear very many people talk about it outside of my extremely nerdy select group of friends. Yeah. So just to kind of bring the ship into port here. Oh, yeah. We do need to get into port, don't we? Yeah. So the mountains. Yeah. W what's your interpretation of the mountains? 
Oh, again, I feel like I'm very obvious and, and simplistic here, but um, heaven? Yeah. Fulfillment? Okay. I, I Ultimate don't... satisfaction? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Okay. So, and... And maybe that's also, I grew up in the West, and so mountains are incredibly important to me. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I kind of wanted to draw out here. So if the mountains are heaven, there is an aspect to Niggle's painting when it is made real. It goes up to the mountains. It becomes part of the terrain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Part of the landscape. Yeah, part of the landscape. So much so that the second voice is... Sending, they're sending people to Niggle's painting. Yes. To prepare them for heaven. Yeah. If we're going to just draw the dots. Right. <laughs> Which is in narrative form Tolkien's philosophy of subcreation. Yeah. That he, as a, a Catholic, believes that all of the the world, all of the universe is created by God and that we are created in God's image. And one aspect of that, an important aspect of being created in God's image is that we also then have the impulse, the desire to make. And that Mm -hmm. when we do so, we are reflecting God's image or inhabiting God's image in some way. And so that our activity as as makers, as sub-creators, is somehow participating in the original act of creation. So he's He's argued explicitly in in nonfiction that that is that is what one does when one makes anything. One participates in creation in some way, and it's given flesh. Then in this story, where Niggle had a vision of the mountains and painted the trees in front of the mountains and mm-hmm. loved them, and and because he painted them and loved them, they became real. Yeah, and it's a uh, it's an interesting thing to meditate on if if you do any sort of creative work because yeah, what are you writing lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is anyone going to get to the mountains via that? Right? <laughs> uh, let's not talk about that. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that that's a an interesting aspect and something you said one time about one of my short stories. Um, oh, so uh, Care Bears are going to be in heaven, <laughs> which is a little concerning. <laughs> yeah. Probably not the most concerning thing that will be in heaven. <laughs> but <laughs> No, but it, it gives you pause if, if you feel that that's yeah. true and there's an aspect of subcreation yes. and that that's part of the image bearing aspect of humanity. Right. Yeah. Well, whether that is what you believe or not, it's an it's a deep thing to contemplate that that's what Tolkien believed was happening. That if you make something, that there is, in some sense, it is a very real thing and an existent thing, not mere words, not mere stories, not... Yeah. It's not a limited thing. Yeah. Okay, I feel like we're in port, but we haven't tied the ship up at the dock. So for some, it is the best introduction to the mountains. That's a great line. It is. Would it have any connection to anything that this podcast is ostensibly about? Well, Amanda, I think there's a Gene Wolfe essay that has that title. Interesting. Do you think maybe we should talk about that sometime? We might get around to it. Next episode, perhaps? Perhaps. Well, thank you. This is Amanda. This is Brent. As Gene Wolfe says, what a man knows hardly matters. It is what he does.